Good morning, FCF Church. It is so good to see you guys here this morning. If you are joining us online, we're so happy to have you with us as well. We're going to start out our morning with this question. Have you ever known what you should do, but didn't do it? Has there, has there ever been a moment in your life where you knew, you knew what you should do, you knew what the right thing to do was, and you just didn't do it? Hopefully it's all of us. If, if you're sitting out there and you've always known the right thing and you always did the right thing when you knew it, you should write a book for the rest of us because the rest of us would like to know how to do that because there have been those times when we've known the right thing and we just didn't do it. We knew that we should be honest and we just weren't. We knew that we should go apologize to that person. We just didn't. We knew that we should address that tension with that person and we just didn't. We knew that we should, you know, take better care of our health and we just didn't. And what happens when we see the right thing and we know what it is we're supposed to do, we know what the right thing to do is, most of the time, not only is it the right thing, not only is it what we should do, but at the same time, we know that it would be good for us. In fact, we say things like, man, my life would be so much better if I would just, or things would just be so much easier if I would just, or I would just be so much happier, or I could just be so much healthier if I would just, and then we're just like... Oh, well, and, you know, we just go on with our lives, you know? Is that, like, isn't that, that's just crazy to me. Or, or there are those times when there are those things that we know that we shouldn't do, right? The things that we know we shouldn't do, and we do them, right? You know, we knew that we shouldn't have dated that guy. We shouldn't have dated that girl. You know, we shouldn't have been hanging out with those friends, you know? We know that we shouldn't have followed that link. We know we shouldn't have spent that money. We shouldn't have eaten that. And, and we, we say these things when we're in that experience, and we're like, you know, I'm really going to hate myself for this. Like, I'm going to really regret this tomorrow. We're like, oh, well. And, you know, when we just do it. <laughs> we are active willing participants in undermining our own happiness, like we, right? We know what we should do. We know what would be good for us. We know what would make us happy, and we don't do it. Like, how crazy is that? And how much, let me ask this question, how much better would our lives be? How much better would your life be if we did, if we could do the right thing more consistently. How much better would your life be if you just did the right thing more consistently? That when you knew what the right thing to do was, you just did it. Or when you knew what you shouldn't do, you just didn't do it, right? How much less regret would you have today if for the past five years, every time you knew what you should do, you did it, and every time you knew what you shouldn't do, you just didn't do it? And how much less regret will we have in five years if we just became the kind of people that when we knew the right thing to do, we just did it and didn't do the new thing that we knew we shouldn't do, right? How much better would our lives be? Like, how much better would we be? And how much better would our experience of life be if we became those kinds of people? And I'm not just talking about let's figure out how to do that thing that's in our life right now that we just know that we're supposed to do. How do we get up like just the internal like gusto to do that thing that's in our life right now that we know that we should do. But how do we overall as human beings develop into the kinds of human beings that are just better at doing what we know we should do and not doing what we know we shouldn't do? 
You know, how do we become the kind of people that essentially just get better or more effective at getting better? That when we just see the right thing, we just do it. What does it take? How do we become that? Because wouldn't our lives be vastly different in five years if we just did what we know we should? And I don't think, I don't think it's a knowledge problem. I don't think that we solve this by just knowing something more, knowing something different, because we already know what the right thing to do is. That's the whole point. We know what the right thing is. We know what we shouldn't do. It's rarely a shock to us when we find out, oh, really, I'm not supposed to drink my face off every Thursday and Friday night. Huh, I wish somebody would have told me sooner. You know, it's not a shock to us that we are not supposed to look at pornography. It's never like, Oh, I'm not supposed to look at that. I wish somebody would have published that. We know. We know what we shouldn't do. We know what we shouldn't do. It's not a knowledge problem. And we could make the argument. We could make the argument that it's just hard to do the right thing. It's a matter of it's just hard to do. And that would be a valid argument. Because what tends to happen is doing the right thing tends to be doing, equate to doing the hard thing. Usually when the, the right thing requires some sacrifice of immediate pleasure in order to get a long-term payoff, right? Usually the right thing requires sacrificing some sort of immediate pleasure in, term, in, in order to get some kind of long-term payoff. And that's hard. But I think, I think, I think that hard is more of an excuse for not doing the right thing than a reason. Because what we tell our kids at our house all the time is, oh, it's hard? Well, good news, you're capable of doing hard things. My three-year-old, when she knows that nobody's looking and nobody's paying attention, and we have candy set up on you know, the top shelf of the pantry that's seven feet up, she knows nobody's looking. She will hoist her 35-pound body up these seven feet, just free-climbing the shelves to get to the candy. No problem. But then when we find the wrapper on the floor later and ask her to throw it away, it's too hard. It's like, what? You just climbed seven feet up our shelves, but you can't throw that away? It's not that it's too hard. She's just not motivated. She doesn't have sufficient motivation. You guys are capable of hard things, and you know it. You can look back over your life and recognize things that were hard that you did. And the reason that you did them was because you were motivated to do them. So I don't think our problem with the struggle to do the right thing comes from the right thing being hard. I think it comes from insufficient motivation. So how do we develop motivation to do the right thing? And by motivation, I'm not talking about some kind of external, superficial, let's get ourselves all pumped up to do something that we wouldn't normally do or value something that we wouldn't normally value, but how do we cultivate within ourselves a consistent temperature of motivation to do what we know is in our own best interest? How do we do that? And I think it's like cultivating soil. If you have bad soil, and we know this, if you put a seed into bad soil that lacks su- sufficient nutrients and water, not the right temperature, it doesn't matter what you say to that seed, it's not going to grow. 
You can yell at the seed. You can pump it up. You can say encouraging things to that seed all day long. It's not going to grow. But you take that same seed and you put it into soil that has the right nutrients, the right level of moisture, and is the right temperature. The most natural thing in the world for that seed to do is grow. It can't help but grow. And I think what we need is to figure out how do we cultivate ourselves inwardly to produce the kind of motivation within ourselves from which we can't help but grow. So how do we do that? We're going to take a look today at a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul wrote this over 2,000 years ago. And the reason that we're looking at this today is because Paul lived during the time of Jesus and was probably amongst the throngs of people who were shouting for the crucifixion of Jesus. And when Jesus' closest followers poured out into the streets and risked their lives because of their desire to preach the message that the Jesus that had been crucified had had been risen from the dead and had appeared to them, Paul led the persecution that put into prison and murdered those followers of Jesus. That is, until the Jesus that they claimed had resurrected from the dead appeared to Paul. And Paul became one of the most influential followers of Jesus in the early church and was responsible for the spread of the Jesus movement throughout the Roman Empire and planted churches throughout the Roman Empire. And he wrote letters to the churches that he planted. And we still have copies of those letters today, letters in which Paul attests to his experience witnessing and encountering the resurrected Jesus. And letters that give us his wisdom and the perspective that he received from interacting with the resurrected Jesus. And in one of those letters, he wrote to a group of followers of Jesus in Rome. And many of the followers of Jesus in Rome were Jews. And so in this letter, in the portion that we're going to be looking at today, Paul is writing to these Jews about the transition from the law to Jesus. If you're not familiar with the law, the law is what God had given to his people through Moses 1,500 years before and consisted over 500 rules and commands. And the reason that God had given them this law was that law was meant to protect and preserve them as a nation. God wanted to protect and preserve their sovereignty as a nation because God had given them very specific, very special revelation of himself. And so in order to protect that revelation... God gave them the law to protect their sovereignty as a nation. So to protect the revelation, God wanted to maintain them as a nation. So that as they grew up as a nation, that revelation that God had given them would fully and ultimately be fulfilled in God's full revelation in Jesus. That's right. So God, Paul is talking about transition from law to to Jesus, what God had all along intended to do. What had happened with the law along the way was that God's people had shifted and misunderstood what the law was meant to do. Instead of leveraging the law to maintain their sovereignty as a nation, they misunderstood the law as being the requirement for what they had to do in order to be accepted by God. 
And so this list of 500 rules became the list of 500 things that you had to do in order for God to accept you. And what God's people were finding out was that when they lived with this set of rules that they had to abide by to be accepted by God, they discovered this dissonance. This dissonance where they knew what God wanted them to do, and simultaneously they found they were unable to do it. Like they knew the right thing but didn't always do it. So in 2,000 years, nothing really has changed that much. And so Paul writes this letter to them as much as he writes it to us today. And here's what Paul says. And what he shares here is from the perspective of someone who's trying to satisfy God through the law. This isn't Paul's experience as a follower of Jesus. This is Paul describing the experience of someone who's trying to find acceptance from God by following the law. And here's what he says. So I find this law at work, where I find this dynamic or principle at work. Although I want to do good, like I recognize what the right thing to do is, I recognize what I should do, and I want to do it, although I want to do it, evil is right there with me. So I see this good that I should do, but it's like there's something like, that's pulling me away from doing what is good to do what is evil. For in my inner being, inwardly, like deep down in my heart, I delight in God's law. Like I recognize its benefit for me in my life. But I see another law or dynamic or principle at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind. It's like it's waging war against my desire. I see what's good. I see what's right. I want to do it. But there's this dynamic that's pulling me away from that, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And sin is essentially living any other way than how God created us to live. There is a way that God created us to live that when we live that way, it produces our maximal enjoyment and experience of life. It is life to the full. And anything that deprives us of experiencing life the way that God created us to live and enjoy it, anything that deprives us of that, God calls it sin. He says, don't do that. Because it's just going to end up destroying and hurting you and other people. So just don't do that. And Paul's saying... Although I recognize that God's way is for my best and I want to do that, there's this thing that's pulling me towards self-destructive living. So he goes on. So then I myself in my, in my mind am a slave to God's law. I want to do what's right, but in my sinful nature, there's this, this, this dynamic inside of me that just keeps pulling me away from what I know is right. I'm a slave to the law of sin or doing other than what I know is right and best for me. And so Paul is trying to color out this dissonance that God's people were experiencing by trying to satisfy God through the law. And he's pointing out to them that trying to find acceptance from God by fulfilling the requirements of the law is always going to be insufficient for producing authentic life change. And here's why. Because you, me, all of us have a core set of desires. Two of the most significant are these. Our need for acceptance, we, all of us, have deep down within us this need for acceptance. And we could call it a need for value, a need for worth, but essentially it's a need for acceptance. It's a need to know that we are desirable, that someone would like us as we are. We all have this because we would all prefer to be accepted than we would to be rejected. We could choose to be accepted or rejected by our family, by our friends, by our co-works. We would always choose to be accepted. We desire that. We long for it. 
And those of us who like to say, you know what, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I don't care if anybody accepts me. I don't care what people say about me. Generally, that's a defense that we put up that's produced by a fear of rejection, right? Because deep down within us, every single one of us wants to be accepted. We have a need for acceptance and we have a need for autonomy. We desire to be autonomous. And by autonomous, I mean we want to be free to make our own choices, to make our own decisions, to be the gods and um, leaders of our own lives. We want freedom. And we know this because you can remember that time that you made that decision about that thing that you were going to do. Like you're like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Okay, I feel good about this. It's the right thing to do. But then your parent or your boss came along with a recommendation, and what they recommended was that thing that you had already decided to do, but when they recommended it, you didn't want to do it anymore. Like, all of a sudden, it was a bad idea. Like, a second ago, you were motivated, you were pumped up to do it, but as soon as it was somebody else's idea being imposed on you, you didn't want to have anything to do with it. You know why? Because we want to be autonomous. We want to be free. We want to feel like we are the ones in charge and making decisions for our lives. So we need acceptance, and we need Autonomy. And any time, any time the right thing conflicts with our desire for acceptance or autonomy, we will eventually resent it and eventually, ultimately, resist it. And any time doing the right thing requires me to sacrifice my autonomy in order to be accepted... I will eventually resent it and ultimately resent, resent it and resist it. If someone tells me, I will love you if you, I will accept you if you, I will accept you as long as you meet these requirements, that requires me to sacrifice my autonomy for acceptance. And I'll eventually resent it and ultimately I'm going to resist it. And any time doing the right thing feels to me like I have to sacrifice autonomy for acceptance, I'll resent it and eventually resist it. Even when, even when I know it's what's best for me. Our need for acceptance, our need for autonomy are so strong, we will deprive ourselves of what we know is best in order to preserve them. And this is what had happened with God's people, why they were experiencing dissonance and trying to do the right thing to satisfy God. Because deep down inside of them, what was happening was they felt like they were being asked to sacrifice autonomy in order to be accepted. And the result is that I will, we will, you will resent the what and the who that set the standard for our value. And we will ultimately resist the what and the who that set the standard for our value. And this isn't just a Bible thing. This isn't just a spiritual thing. This isn't just a religious thing. This is just a thing thing. This happens anywhere in life. And this is why some of you who were raised in homes where you had to believe a certain thing, where you had to value a certain set of things, and even though you heard what your parents said, you knew deep down, if you didn't believe what they said to believe, and if you didn't value what they said to value, you knew, you knew that your acceptance 
was on the line. And eventually, eventually you resented it. And ultimately, you resisted it. And you pushed back. And you walked away. And it didn't even have anything to do with the beliefs. It didn't have anything to do with the values. It had to do with you felt like you were being asked to sacrifice your autonomy for acceptance. And you resented it and ultimately resisted. And some of us who are adults today still recognize that those things that you were raised with with, were good. And they would even be helpful and beneficial to your life. But you can't bring yourself to abide by them because it still feels like you're being asked to sacrifice autonomy for acceptance. And you can't bring yourself to do it, even still. And that's why a lot of us fail at things like New Year's resolutions, because we live in a culture that asks us to sacrifice our autonomy for acceptance. We live in a culture that says, this is what you must look like in order to be accepted. And in order to look like this, you have to eat like this, you have to exercise like this, you have to dress like this, and you have to do this. And so we start our New Year's resolutions and say, well, I want to be acceptable, so I'm going to sacrifice my autonomy to do what I need to be accepted. We start eating like that and exercising like that, but pretty soon we lose motivation. Eventually, we resent it. And ultimately, we resist it. Because we will ultimately resent and resist the what and the who that set the standard for value. And any time, any time the right thing conflicts with our need for acceptance, we'll tend to choose acceptance over the right thing just about every time. And the result is our sense of worth, our sense of value, it's not fixed. It's not firm. It's insecure. It, it's, it's vulnerable. Our sense of value becomes vulnerable. And we're always trying to, to prove that we're acceptable. And the result is life becomes a pass or fail test. And when we fail to do the right thing, instead of confronting that and owning it and taking ownership and recognizing, you know what, I failed to do the right thing, we don't have the safety emotionally and relationally to accept that we could ever be the one who's at fault for us not doing the right thing. And so we shift blame. We shift responsibility. We blame our friends. We blame our circumstances. We blame our upbringing. We blame everything because we can't bear. We don't have the emotional stability. We don't have the firm sense of value that allows us to look our failure in the eye and ask, why did this go wrong? And how can I do better next time? And the result is we don't grow. We don't change. We don't develop. We don't learn how to become people who do the right thing. Instead, we become driven by fear of rejection. We become full of anxiety. We we feel pressure to be someone that deep down we don't think that we are. We put forward the things that we want other people to see, and we hide the things that deep down really need to change, but we don't even want to look at. What do you think happens to motivation when that's the soil that we're growing in? What happens to our motivation? right? There's no motivation there. What's growing in that kind of soil? If the soil that we've produced internally is the soil where we're trying to prove and earn and validate and deny the things that are wrong and broken, what's growing in that soil? Insecurity, pride, pretense, the very thing that Jesus came to address with God's people. They weren't changing, and they couldn't change. It's impossible to change. 
The seed doesn't grow when the soil is filled and is nourished by the need to sacrifice autonomy for acceptance. So what's the solution? Paul says this. He says, therefore, therefore, because sacrificing autonomy for acceptance is never going to produce life change. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no rejection. Acceptance is given freely. There's no more rejection. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are followers of Jesus, there's no more rejection or condemnation. And then he says this. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Through Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, this principle, this dynamic that brings us life, that allows us to do what we know we should, frees us from the pull into things that ultimately hurt us and hurt others. It frees us from it. How? For what the law was powerless to do, what the law couldn't do, what trying to meet some external requirement in order to please God, what that was never going to be able to do because the law was never meant to do that. God didn't give the law in order to change people's lives. God didn't give a set of requirements in order to produce change. God gave the law not as a cure for the sickness of sin, but as a diagnostic for the sickness of sin. The law was meant to work as an MRI to show us how broken we were. You can go through an MRI all day long. It is not going to heal you. It will only show you what is wrong. The law was meant to show God's people what was wrong. What the law was powerless to do because it was never meant to, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did God diagnosed through the law, but then he sent the antidote. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. God came in the person of Jesus to be a sin offering or be, to be an antidote to our problem of sin. That thing that keeps pulling us out of alignment with what we know is good. The thing that keeps pulling us out of alignment with what we know we should be doing. God came to cure that by coming in the person of Jesus. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. God came in the person of Jesus to fulfill our need for acceptance and autonomy. He came to fulfill our need, our desire for acceptance and autonomy so that we could be free to do what we know we should. So we wouldn't feel like we have to struggle for acceptance. So we wouldn't have to feel like we have to struggle to maintain autonomy. He freed us from that. Jesus died on the cross to prove that if he's willing to die for us, he's for us. That he loves us and accepts us just as we are. There's nothing that we have to do to be approved by him. He accepts us just as we are when we are at our very worst. When we were nailing him to a cross, he died for us. To show us, to show you, you are accepted. And if you are accepted by God, who else's acceptance do you need? If you are accepted and approved of by the creator of the universe, 
Who else do you need to impress? If God is for you, who could be against you? God has accepted you. You no longer need to fight for it. And when the right thing conflicts with acceptance, it doesn't have to because you're already fully accepted. And he came to ensure us that he is a respecter of our autonomy. He didn't exert an ounce of energy. He didn't lift a finger when his own creation nailed him to a cross. He didn't do a single thing to stop us. He is a respecter of our freedom. He will never impose himself on us. He did not come in the person of Jesus to force us or to coerce us or to make us. He came in the person of Jesus to set us free. And instead of forcing us, he casts a vision for our lives and says, I have something that's good for you. And I won't force you, but I'll invite you to come and follow me. Because you are loved and you are free. And when we know, when we are assured that our acceptance and our autonomy are intact, the barrier between us and God, the barrier of fear, the barrier of resentment, the barrier of resistance, it crumbles. Now we're free to act in our own best interest. We no longer have to act to try to maintain our acceptance or maintain our autonomy. We are now free to act in our own self-interest, to follow Jesus, to align our lives with what we know is best for us in any sphere. Once our acceptance and our autonomy are, are intact, we can do what is right in any sphere of our lives without feeling like there's a threat to either of them. We can do whatever, we can do what's in our best interest financially. We can do what's in our best interest for our health. We can do what's in our best interest for our relationships without ever feeling like our acceptance or our autonomy are being attacked. And the reason Jesus did this was that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live, who no longer live according to the flesh trying to earn acceptance, trying to maintain an autonomy that we already have. We don't have to live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We can live fully free. That's fully accepted, fully free children of God. And when we do, when we do, when I am, when you are loved unconditionally, I can, you can do the right thing and still be free. When you are loved unconditionally, you can do the right thing without it costing you your freedom. When you are loved unconditionally, you can do the right thing and still be free. And only when you are loved unconditionally are you free to become who you were meant to be. Only, only, only when you cultivate an internal soil of unconditional acceptance and love are you free to become who you were created to be. What happens here? What happens here in this transition 
from sacrificing autonomy to receive acceptance to knowing that I'm fully accepted and fully autonomous. What happens here is that my motivation goes from being an extrinsic motivation to an intrinsic motivation. I'm no longer motivated by something external. I'm no longer motivated by this desire to be accepted, by this desire to receive someone's approval. Now I'm desire, now I'm driven by an intrinsic desire. Now that my my acceptance and my autonomy are intact, I can pursue what I know is best for me, what is good for me, what is right for me, without any fear, without any shame, without anything holding me back. And here's what studies have shown, that people who are motivated intrinsically compared to people who are motivated extrinsically, people who are motivated intrinsically, there have not just been a couple studies done on this, but hundreds upon hundreds of studies have validated this with various people of various ages and various contexts that intrinsically motivated people always, 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 always outperform extrinsically motivated people. People who do something because they actually value it and desire it versus people who do something because there's some sort of external reward or threat of punishment. People who do it because they recognize this is what is right and good. They always outperform extrinsically motivated people. They engage in the task longer. They engage in the task with more effort. They engage and problem solve with more creativity. And, and they enjoy it more. God created us in such a way that we would be driven and motivated when we cultivate a soil of absolute acceptance and absolute autonomy. And we can't help but grow in those conditions. And not only do we grow better, but we enjoy it simultaneously. How do I become someone who more consistently does the right thing? By embracing my God-given acceptance, and autonomy. How do I become somebody who can get better at getting better? By embracing my God-given acceptance and autonomy. How do I accept, how do I embrace my God-given acceptance and autonomy? We embrace our God-given acceptance by no longer doing the things by no longer seeking acceptance and engaging in acceptance-seeking behaviors and thought patterns. The way that we embrace our God-given acceptance is by no longer engaging in acceptance-seeking behaviors and thought patterns. We stop doing and stop thinking in ways that cause us to seek acceptance from other people or to prove our acceptability to God. Here are two big things that you can do this week to eliminate acceptance-seeking behaviors and thought patterns. Number one, stop comparing. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop looking around you at the people who are further ahead, at the people who are better off, at the people who have more, and comparing yourself to them. Stop it. When you compare yourself to others, you reinforce mentally that you believe that your value relates to how well you measure up against other people. The more that you compare yourself to other people, the more you will find your value in how you measure against them and the less you will find your value through your God-given acceptance. Stop comparing yourself to others. You weren't created to be them. Your potential is not their potential and their potential is not yours. You were given one race to run and that's yours. We've got to run that race with the blinders up, not looking to the right or to the left at how we compare to other people. And the only person we should be comparing ourselves to is who we were yesterday. 
I can get better than who I was yesterday. By the love and acceptance and freedom of Christ, I can get better than who I was yesterday. That is the only person I need to compare myself to. The only potential, the only person's potential that I can meet is my own. Stop comparing yourself. Number two, take ownership. Take ownership. When you find that you fail to do what you know that you should, sit down in the light of the love and acceptance of God and look that failure in the eye and embrace it, knowing that it is not a threat to your value. It's not a threat to your worth. You can look your failure right in the eye and you can say, yep, I did that. And I am the kind of person who does that. And I am still acceptable and loved by God. Now, how do I make sure that I don't do that again? What was it that caused me to do that in the first place? And how do I become the kind of person who doesn't do that again? Only when I can embrace embrace and own my failures can I get better at doing what I know I should later we've got to learn to embrace our failures and not shift blame on other people not shift responsibility on someone else listen I recognize I recognize that who you are today may be the result of what someone else has done to you Get that. But you can take responsibility for who you become tomorrow. And you might not yet be who you want to be. You might not yet be the kind of person that you want to become. But that's the power of yet. The power of yet is knowing I am not there yet. But by the love and freedom of Christ, I can get there. And I can be better, incrementally better tomorrow than I was today. You are free, free, free to take ownership over your life. It's safe. Your value, your value's never at stake. Stop comparing. Take ownership. How do we embrace our God-given autonomy? How do we embrace our God-given autonomy? When we find that we're confronted with what we know we should do and a resistance to do it, we're gonna remind ourselves, I am loved and I am free. Now, is this really, is it really what's best for me? Am I really gonna keep dating her? Am I really gonna keep dating him? I'm loved and I am free. I am loved by the creator of the universe and I am free to make my own choices in my own best self-interest. Is this really, really what's best for me? Am I really gonna continue holding this grudge against them? Am I really gonna continue holding this over that person's head? I'm loved and I'm free. Is this really what's best for me? Am I really gonna spend my money that way? To impress who? I'm loved and I'm free. Is this really what's best for me? I know the rest of my friends are doing it. I know everybody else is doing that. But me, I'm loved and I'm free. Is that really what's best for me? And when we embrace God's acceptance and our God-given autonomy, 
when we stop comparing, when we take ownership, when we recognize we are loved and free and can evaluate whether or not this is best for me, we cultivate soil within ourselves where we can't help but grow. Not only that, but our objective, our goal that we're working towards in life is no longer to receive acceptance or prove our value. We have a brand new, we can replace that objective, we can replace that old goal with a brand new goal, a brand new vision for our lives that has the power to absolutely change everything. And that is what we're going to talk about next Sunday. So I hope you come back and join us for part two, getting better at getting better. Will you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that what we want most within ourselves to be accepted, loved, and free is what you want for us as well. And you've given it to us. You've granted to us what we long for, that we can become who you created us to be and experience the life that you created us to experience. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.